welcome to the Artist's Podlight Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Jungren, and I'm joined by my colleagues here in Great Falls, Montana, Sydney George. Hello. Anne Martinez. Hi there. And from Aspen, Colorado, Marnie Birmingham. Hey, Jeff. Let's hope the technology gods are with us today. <laughs> today, we are shining our podlight on literary agent Jeff Kleiman, a founding partner of the Folio Literary Ma Management Agency in Manhattan. Jeff is the, is the name behind such literary home runs as The Snow Child by Arrow and Ivy, The Art of Racing in the Rain by Garth Stein, Mockingbird by Charles Shields, and The Memory of Running by Ron McClarty. In addition to representing prolific fiction and nonfiction authors, Jeff is a writer himself, co-authoring the book The Science of Rejection Letters, a step-by-step -step guide to analyze rejection letters in order to improve your writing and get published with Ryan Lajardi. He's a frequent contributor to literary journals, blogs, magazines, and, of course, podcasts. And he's led numerous workshops and conferences around the country. That's why we are so happy to welcome, live from New York, it's Jeff Kleiman. <laughs> Sorry, Jeff, I just didn't do that there. I apologize for that. Jeff, thank you. No, thank you for letting me be here. Oh, you thank you for being here. We're so glad you're able to make a join, uh, the time to join us. Um, <clears throat> let me just start off, Jeff, by, by asking you, what, what prompted you to become a literary agent? Um, I was working as an attorney, uh, doing intellectual property law uh, with a lot of publishing, and I ended up being a reader for one of the agents that was actually shared office space with us, mm -hmm. and... Um, the first book I edited, they ended up selling for six figures, and then they <laughs> nice. did another seven-figure deal, and I'm like, dang, I'm totally in the wrong Excellent. Oh, my gosh. Wow. So, how does your own creativity influence the clients you represent? How does your own creativity influence the clients you represent? So... That you can answer in a trillion different ways. Um, sometimes I have an author who will come to me with sort of an idea and will brainstorm. Well, what if we make her a, um, a gymnast? Well, what if we do a, um, give her a, a, an animal friend or like that kind of thing? So sometimes it's literally that level. Sometimes it's, um, it's a question of actually writing parts of the manuscripts for an author. Um, when you were talking about um, writing books for authors, I actually ghostwritten several um, books when, for whatever reason, the author didn't work out, uh, wow. or the author was having issues. So um, it comes out in all sorts of ways. Um, maybe it's just creativity in regards to a deal. Um, like, you're supposed to do an X or Y way, but you end up doing it Z way because you think, why not? Like, it'll be more fun this way. So, um, I don't know, does that answer the question? Yeah, no, it, it does. I, I'm kind of interested. I mean, obviously, you probably can't name the books, but... I'm interested in the process you went through in ghostwriting several of the books. How did, how did that work out for you? Uh, it was fun. The, the, the one that was a real struggle um, was a manuscript that uh, we ended up um, basically rewriting. I cut it down like 20,000 words and then added like 70,000 words, and um, wow. the book was accepted. So uh, that was very cool. <laughs> but, oh, um, yeah. I don't know. It's a fun way of doing stuff. Oh, it sounds like it. It sounds like it. Well, well, thank you, Jeff. So I'll, I'll turn everything over to, uh, to Anne. Oh, it's me, Marnie. Oh, hey, sorry, Marnie. I apologize. I apologize. <laughs> um, hey, Jeff, Hi, you have uh, an extensive background in literature, 
and in law, and you found a way to combine the two, which is great. Um, with all the changes and mergers in the publishing world over the last decade, I wonder if um, keeping current with all the evolving legal and technical aspects um, tends to, does that pull you away from the pleasure of reading a juicy manuscript? I can't imagine how you balance, you know, everything that you're trying to do. Well, it's really, the sad thing is, is we have a contracts manager, so he handles like the day-to-day, -day, we have, there's I think 12 agents at Folio, and you know, there's a lot of contracts, so he does a lot of the day-to-day -day stuff. So um, my business partner and I do sort of the bigger, the higher picture stuff, or deal with you know gruesome legal things that you have to deal with, like employment law or something that makes you poke your eye out. But uh, <laughs> you know, there's really not that much stuff. I mean, there's certainly mm -hmm. changes in, in 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 the world, but it's more in technology than than the law. It feels like. And, mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I don't know, but uh, surviving somehow. <laughs> well, you're known as being a very hands-on agent, and you personally guide your clients through the evolution, as you were saying, the evolution of their book. Um, can you talk about how you help the author shape their story while still fine-tuning their own distinctive voice? So that is the key thing. You have now, like, to me, that is the big word, is the word voice. So mm -hmm. I can do stuff, but I, one thing I can't do is manufacture somebody else's voice. If they don't, if they don't have, um, what, how, do you, how do you define voice? That, that that fingerprint that makes you know the difference between reading J.D. Salinger's sentence and Virginia Woolf. Like if, if that author doesn't have that kind of distinctiveness, I can't create that. But once that's there, it feels like then it becomes just a question of trying to figure out, okay, how do we generate the best momentum? How can we really drill and make this character as rich and interesting as possible? Um, and all I can really do, um, the, the analogy I always use is that we agents are like sharks or we editors are like sharks. Like uh, we're good at sensing blood and saying <laughs> showing where the blood, but but like saying exactly where the blood is in the water, I can say, um, you know, it's coming from your elbow, but you, the writer, have to say, no, you idiot, it's coming from the shoulder. But the reality <laughs> is that there's is that there's blood, um, and I can say, okay, you know, this scene isn't working. There's not enough momentum here. The character isn't believable, and the answer is, well, really, the character is believable, but it turns out my dialogue really isn't strong enough. Um, so I might pick up one thing, but it's really the writer's job to know themselves well enough to be able to manifest their voice in a clearer way. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yes, that makes sense. So you would maybe even help them a little with pacing. If you felt like it was getting a little slow in places, you could just tell them. No, no, not a little. Like, that's what my job is. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wasn't going to flip, actually. I mean, honestly, um, what we have to do as agents is read for momentum. That, that's the primary goal. Um, and if I am not, not turning the pages, then my worry is the editor won't turn the page. And if, so if the narrative momentum is not there, we have to be able to determine why. Well, the characters aren't strong enough. The plot isn't believable. Um, the writing isn't strong enough. The quote, the, the, I don't know, the punctuation is wrong. Like for whatever reason, as soon as you stop turning the page, that's a, a huge red flag to me as the agent. So um, the big thing that I think uh, it's sort of frustrating is, is writers really feel like, you know, I'll just keep sending you the same book over and over again, Jeff. And the reality is, is that you can only read it once for momentum, because once you know what's going to happen and how it all lays out, then it's a question of fine tuning for other things. But that mm -hmm. first critical is the page being turned piece. Like you, you can't manufacture that and you can't duplicate it. That makes sense. Well, it was 
Yes, it was certainly true with um, the art of racing in the rain. Uh, I, I lent that my copy to a friend the other day, and he called me and said, I'm only on page four and I'm already crying. <laughs> <laughs> and I know I read recently that uh, racing in the rain has gone from Universal to Disney and now to Fox 2000. Do you remain involved in this process with Garth Stein? Is that something that you do? Um, well, the, the question is whether or not the where are the actual rights. So if the rights mm -hmm. are optioned, um, then what happens is, is that you know the, the, the entity, whatever it is, the production uh, studio, the, the producer, or the studio, or whoever, has the right to do something for X number of years. And then if they don't do anything, then you get the rights back and you sell it elsewhere. Um, in this case, it's a little different because um, Universal actually had purchased the rights outright to Art of Racing in the Rain, so I'm much less a party here. I mean, that Garth, Garth is hopefully going to be involved and, and sends emails saying, how can I help? And like, there's some meetings that are involved, but it's much more they own the rights. So okay. um, I don't know if that answers the question. It, it, yes, this is what I'm, I'm less involved with because I, I can't be more involved. Well, it was an excellent, an excellent read. Sticks with you, for sure, those characters. Um, I know... To switch gears a little bit, I know you've lived in a lot of different places, but um, at the risk of sounding like I'm romanticizing, how does being in New York play to your own sense of creativity? Like the energy of the city and the pace, and, um, what, is, what is that like as opposed to other places that you've worked? All right, well, I'll answer that in two ways. The first way is a story. So... Um, I um, also have a house in the country in Virginia, um, and we have editors who will come visit for the weekend. And I went to this editor who did health and diet and fitness books come visit. We went for dinner at our breakfast, and I think it was like IHOP or something. And she ordered an omelet, and as you know, omelets come with toast and a side of pancakes and bacon <laughs> and like there's all this food. And she was really, really appalled. She's like, oh, my God, I can't believe you got this food for $40. And I kind of looked at her, and all I could think of is, and this is your audience. These are the people that yeah. are having to purchase your book. How do you not know that? Yeah. And so the reason I'm saying that is because it really feels like um, the problem with Manhattan is it can really be an island. It feels like it's a very isolated place that's in many ways not in touch with um, other parts of the world. Um, and then the other side of the coin it's uh, it is so fun <laughs> to be here because <laughs> you're here with so many ridiculously interestingly creative people doing really interesting crazy things. So I think it kind of cuts both ways. Mm -hmm. Oh, it is. We we definitely need to uh, have our podcast come to New York for <laughs> episodes. We'll yeah, do a follow up episode mm -hmm. with you. Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> Oh, hi, Jeff. This is Anne. Um, and I noticed that you do do a lot of podcasts and webinars that help writers navigate the publishing world, which is just a great service. Um, how is the advent and proliferation of ebooks and the consolidation in the publishing industry impacted the ability of authors to be published? I'm not going to answer that question, but I'll answer a different one. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, I think the most interesting thing that is happening um, is that books are being published and they're breaking 
down into slightly different ways. Um, and it feels like the divide is more along the lines of what the voice is. So that what I was talking about earlier, a voice, it feels like books that are a little more commercial um, or concerned with down market or genre, um, where the writing is not as important. The writing can be a little more pedestrian. And that book seems to be published in some type of self-published or assisted self-published or um, the Amazon imprints. Um, a lot of thrillers, a lot of these types of books. It feels like that is an area that is getting the authors are owning more. Um, not everything, and this is sort of these rough things, but it's something I've been look, thinking about. If the book is a little more literary, a little more voice-driven, the the technique is kind of more important, that's where it feels like the publishers that are involved are better at publishing those books. So it's dividing in a slightly different way. Um, it's, I mean, and clearly there's a billion um, examples of this not being true. So this is just like really broad picture stuff, but it, it's useful to think about because it feels like a lot of times authors are looking for agents and the agents aren't interested and the author can't figure out why. And the answer is because we're not able to sell those kinds of books as much anymore. So like really commercial thrillers um, with sort of a down market genre feel, there aren't that many publishers anymore. And Amazon is, is, is kind of owning more of that territory. Um, as soon as it starts getting more literary and um, thoughtful, then, then publishers completely eat it up. But um, that's one way. Um, I definitely think authors are doing more of their own stuff. Um, the question is, is just because you, 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 the thing I always think, think of is, you know, just because you can dance at a wedding doesn't mean you should go on um, Dancing with the Stars or <laughs> <laughs> Dancing Champion. Yeah. And that's a little bit the feel. Like, okay, just because you can write a book doesn't necessarily mean um, that other people are going to read it um, or that it'll be even discoverable. So there's a, there's a lot of tools that I think an author needs to really have to kind of be effective um, as, as their own best advocate. But I totally think it's a great idea and can... Um, can kind of be kicking the pants to publishers too. Like, dude, you got to get off your butts because you know these people don't need you anymore mm -hmm. um, on some level. What kind of tools? E mark e, e newsletters, for instance. So one of the things that I don't think authors are aware is that you know they're they're out tweeting and facebooking about their book, and what it turns out is like out of a hundred Facebook friends, you might get ten people to open up your post about. Um, um, your book. And out of the, the 100 Twitter followers, you may get one person. But out of 100 email newsletter followers, you might get up to 30 to 50 people. So the conversion rate is vastly higher. Um, and having that kind of engaged readership can be a huge boon to an author. And I don't know how many authors really are aware of that. And that they can write effective newsletters. Mm -hmm. Um, another topic I'm interested in, Jeff, um, I know you're involved in a lot of writers' workshops. Um, it looked like you had one down in uh, Salt K, uh, and you're involved with many others. Um, how are those, attending those workshops, helpful for new authors? Um, I think it can be really huge. If the author really is trying to learn and really not just get published. So there's a lot of these types of entities that are really kind of geared toward 
you know, find an agent, get a book deal. And that's, I think, less effective than really sitting down and saying, okay, let me sit in the feet of somebody who really has has learned how to write and let me figure out how they do things so I can figure out my own way of doing things and I can kind of have that kind of uh, parity that they have, that kind of, that real strong writing. Um, so um, that's, I think, what can be really helpful. Um, also kind of joining a community of writers. So all of these things I think are what's useful. Um, I feel like a lot of times I go to these writers conferences and I say to this room full of, you know, 500 people, I suspect one of you, if that, are going to be actually ready to talk to agents. Like, you're just not ready. You shouldn't be here talking to agents in terms of getting a book deal. You should be talking to agents in terms of, um, is my voice strong enough? How can I increase narrative momentum? Is the premise viable? Like, these types of things are questions that, that I think an agent can answer. But a lot of times the book is just not ready. You, you've written the book and you're, like, now looking to publish it as opposed to you've written the book and now you're looking to get the best book possible. So when you go to these conferences, are you looking to discover new talent, and how do you identify it in that setting? You know, I don't know how to even begin to answer that, because that's the fiction that they, everybody has going, is that we are here to get clients, and it would be great to find a writer who's really ready to go and you could take on. I went to this, my favorite conference was up in Alaska, and I picked up two writers at this conference, and it was like so crazy, it's never happened ever before. Like normally... I'll go to like maybe five conferences, maybe let's say 10 um, over two years and pick up maybe one, but probably not even one. So, um, you know, you're going there kind of hoping to find somebody, um, but really you're going there because it's great to hang out with editors in a different setting or meet other publishing professionals. We're just hopefully in part to people like, look, keep these five things in mind when you're writing characters or um, or dialogue or something. So you're hoping people are hearing you, even though all they're hearing is, can you represent me? You know, so I, feel like, um, I was going to ask you what your favorite conference was, and I was expecting you to say one in Hawaii, but it's interesting you chose Alaska. Um, my favorite conference of all is actually, it's, it's, it's changing hands, but it was um, the Words and Music Conference in New Orleans. Um, and the reason it was, I loved it is because it was not about getting a book deal. It was about loving literature. And the woman who ran it would stuff all us agents and editors into one panel. And normally, like, we do all stuff, you know, like, that's the big thing is the agent editor draw. And she's like, oh, God, I know we have to have these agents and editors there because that, we're, they're the draw to a lot of these writers. But I really want to talk about, uh, I don't know, celebrate Faulkner's early short stories or, like, some kind of interesting topic that she was interested in that, that, you know, maybe nobody else cared about. They want to hear about how to get a book deal. Um, but because it was so not commercial, it, I just, I, I love this conference. It was by far my favorite because there's also, there's no stress. Like sometimes you go to these writers conferences and it totally sucks when you sit down and you know, I'm thinking about when lunch is and this woman comes in and, and she's all nervous and she's bitten her hands to bits and she sits down and you say, so what are you working on? And she bursts into tears. <laughs> So, and it's not me joking. I mean, it really sucks. Sure. Like, it feels like, like they've put us on these crazy pedestals. And yeah. frankly, I train all our interns. Many of your interns, our interns are, um, do reading for me. And I train them in about 20 minutes on how to read a book huh. for me. And so it's not like this is rocket science. It's not like there's like some magic. It's just like use your thinking skills and read to make sure the book is moving forward. Um, and, 
like people don't hear that. So I don't know. It, writers' conferences can be can be tons of fun and can be kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Um, another last question for me: What um, what do you think about um, young writers attending MFA programs? Um. The the good thing about really investing in a really quality MFA program is it would really allow you potentially to really expand and really become thoughtfully aware of of your own voice as a writer, um, to really read other other great writing and really try to figure out what makes your writing strong. Like that to me feels like a great use of, of time and energy. Um, the problem is a lot of MFA programs, they're trying to get you in and, you know, they're kind of, there's almost a, a lot of times, an, not always, sometimes an implicit promise that once you're done, you'll have a novel length work that'll be ready for publication. And that's, that's not true. So I think if you have the time and the money, or unless you're, you know, paid to do it, to invest in your writing, to make your writing stronger, that seems like a, a one way of going about being a strong writer. Um, another way would be just sitting at a coffee shop and writing. So I don't know. Um, one of my co- one of my clients does a book called DIY MFA, and um, it's a program how you don't need an MFA to you know learn how to really write. And I don't think MFA programs have at all cornered the market on this. I think it shows a commitment to the craft. I think it shows a willingness to really engage in the community, and it can really add to your writing. But there's downsides too. Hi, Jeff. This is Sydney. Hi. Um, Thank you for being with us today. I just finished reading The $80 Champion by Elizabeth Letts. Oh, my gosh. I read that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you did. Um, it, It warmed my heart as well as taught me a great deal about horses and horse showmanship. And I have to tell you, finishing it was bittersweet, but it left me wondering if the books you represent all have similar satisfying qualities for the reader and if so, you, if you could tell us about those trademark qualities that you look for in a book project. Um, I do tend to do animal books that make you cry. <laughs> I noticed that, yeah. Um, I think one of the things, to, a better way of thinking about it is, what the difference between an article and a book is that a book has some kind of conclusion. It builds and there's an end. So you need that to be able to put the book down. You know, Snowman has gone off to his great reward, and you put the book down with a sigh and say, oh, my gosh, that was such a good book, and you hopefully will tell some friend, mm-hmm. oh, my God, I read this great book. Yes. Um, where an article doesn't need – you did that, really? I did. <laughs> cool. And these books are sold by word of mouth. Right. So if you're not talking about it, that means that, you know, it's too easy for the book to disappear. Mm-hmm. So is – Whereas opposed to an article, you don't need that kind of conclusion. You don't need like it to build to something. You can just have a, a slice of the world, and that's enough because that's not what's doing the sale. It's it's the name Time Magazine or whatever. Right. So um, I I know the thing. There's this. It's really weird. Our Israeli sub agent like seems to have a better feel for what my books are than I do, <laughs> but she can tell a Jeff book, which mm-hmm. is kind of strange. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, um, I don't know. I think, I think I like, I think I like a voice that feels very strong and I like to feel that there's some kind of real emotional connection 
to the characters or to the world. And I also feel like um, I do want to be changed by it. I want to feel like like I'm a stronger person or I'm better. I remember when I first time I read The Art Racing the Rain, I really did feel like I was more compassionate as a human being mm-hmm. having read that book. Mm-hmm. So I like that feeling of like the books making you grow. Right. Um, you have said that good writing and smart ideas can change our world. Can you give us a few specific examples of books that do just that? Um, well, Fire in the Fury seems to be doing it right now, right? <laughs> but, oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like, I, it feels like there's always these moments in time when, like, like books can do something. And I, I mean, I don't know if it's like a big picture of changing our world. As in my, I guess the easiest example I can give you, and this is sort of a goofy one, is my daughter has always been a big reader. And she's now 18 and in college. But when she was in, like, fifth grade, she was addicted to Nancy Drew Mysteries. And I was kind of embarrassed, frankly, because like, all of my <laughs> friends' kids, they were reading, like, like my friends would say, oh, my daughter just finished, you know, Henry III, and she's in <laughs> French or something. And I was like, oh, my poor loser kid is just reading, you know, Nancy Drew. And we went to uh, Barnes & Noble, and I'm um, in the children's section, and I was standing in somewhere else, and I looked over at her, and she was walking towards you know, sort of the low bookcases there, and we could see all the Nancy Drews lined up. And she walked over there, and her knees buckled as she got there. And I thought, oh, my God, she's like, she's fainting. Like, something's wrong. So I ran over. I'm like, are you all right? And she said, they have number 55. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, that's world-changing. Like, the fact that my kid's knees buckled because they got a Nancy Drew number 55, that's changing your world. That's what books are supposed to do. Mm-hmm. You know, that it's a visceral reaction that, that – takes you out of yourself that's so critical and the fact and so that's what I want my books to do mm-hmm. is make my daughter's knees buckle <laughs> that's a good story Jeff that is great <laughs> um, what current book projects are you most excited about and why um, current books I have a book coming out this week called Videocracy that's by um, this guy Kevin Alaka who's the head of culture and trends at YouTube so he's what he calls the head of cats, culture and trends. And so that's getting a lot of media. He's going to be on NPR and CNN and CBS and there's a lot of that kind of stuff. And I like it because it really is a thoughtful look at how YouTube has totally transformed how we think about pretty much everything wow. from politics to art to, um, to rainbows to elevators to like it's a whole like it's a like the fact that now you don't need to be getting to people in Cleveland, Ohio. All you need to do is getting to people who love elevators or uh, a certain type of like baby videos or something. It's 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 content. It's not geography. Um, and so that I really like. And he's he's a, such a good writer and such a nice guy. So that's what I'm excited about. I have a novel coming out uh, like in a month, a little less than a month, called Only Child from Knopf which is a book I never thought I'd be able to sell. Um, it's, it's sort of tough subject matter, and I read the thing almost in one sitting. In fact, I was buying my daughter's car. That's how old my daughter is. She's, just, she's 18. And so last year, I was buying her car, and um, the guy said, okay, I'll go fill out the paperwork, and I'm like, um, okay, I'll just read. And I sat there in the Honda dealership crying. <laughs> and they're like, God, dude, if you don't want to buy this car. You know? <laughs> but, um, so that is by a first time author. She doesn't, she's not even a native English speaker. She's German. 
And this is the first thing she's ever written. And I loved it. It sold at Knopf, and I think it sold to like 17 other ter- territories. And the basic story, it's, it's pretty tough, the, um, but the way it's written, it, it doesn't feel that way. It's, uh, the first chapter is a first grader who's hiding in um, his classroom with his teacher in his class as a gunman is outside in the halls. Oh, wow. And you learn at the end of the first chapter that his fourth grade brother's been killed. Um, but this is not a book about school shootings. It turns out what this kid feels like as his world disintegrates, it becomes up to him to save things. So he, he basically puts, he, he saves his like family and his, his community. Um, so what's the book about? It's a book about, um, it's not just a book about grief. It's a book about resilience and the book about what sorrow means. And it's, it's a book about how to survive. Um, and innocence. It, it's so many things, but I honestly figured I would never be able to sell it because, like, I couldn't want to read a book about dying kids. Mm-hmm. So, um, but uh, I'm really excited about that one because it's it's just such a gorgeous book. Wow. Looking forward to reading that. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to yeah. be in line to get that for one sure. on that. So, but Jeff, uh, thank you so much for for sharing your busy time with us this afternoon. We really appreciate it, and it's just thank you guys. Oh, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much, uh, Jeff. Thank you, and um, good luck with the podcast. Thank you for listening to the Artists Podlight Podcast dedicated to honoring both artists and the creative process. Today, we cast our podlight on Jeff Kleinman, literary agent and co-founder of Folio Literary Management. To find out more about Jeff and his agency, please go to www.foliolit.com. That's www.folio lit.com and visit www.theartistspodlightpodcast.com to check out who's talking with us now.